Well, glory. Good to see you this morning. Luke chapter 20 and Luke chapter 9, verse 22. In fact, we're going to start at Luke 9, 22, but then we're going to go directly to Luke chapter 20 this morning. Just to let you know where we're sort of headed this morning, our ministry of the Word is sort of going to be in two sections this morning, okay? Uh, there's going to be the normal way we end the service, but the service isn't going to be over. So hang in there with me after that last song, because there's more to come this morning after that as well. We're living in a time in which there's a lot of words out there, a lot of people talking. And what we're going to find is the chapter we're going to look at this morning, that there's a lot of talking going on there as well. It, it's a chapter of conflict. It's a chapter of opposition against Jesus. And we're going to learn about serving the Lord in this chapter. But before we do... I want you to notice something in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, which is why I wanted you to turn there first, is Jesus actually predicted this. Obviously, way ahead of time, he knew what was coming. And he said to his followers in Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The three groups there that Jesus mentions, the elders, the chief priests, and the experts in the law made up what was called in Israel the Sanhedrin, if you've ever heard that term before. It was 72 people that were partially a spiritual entity, partially a political entity, they literally defined and dictated everyday life for a Jew in Israel at that time under the watchful eye of the Roman Empire. In other words, every Jew, pretty much their life was defined by this 72-person group called the Sanhedrin that are made up of these three groups that Jesus says, they're going to reject me. So now think about what Jesus is saying. The, the very people that were held in highest esteem throughout Israel, the ones that everybody was supposed to look to for spiritual guidance and direction, the ones that had the responsibility before God to point people to God are actually the ones that's going to lead the charge against Jesus Christ and be the ones behind getting the Roman Empire to put him to death. But in all of that, even beginning here in Luke 9:22, here's what I want us to see this morning. But God has the last word. Amen. Because you'll notice Jesus says, yes, I must suffer many things as the Son of Man and be killed, but don't miss that last phrase, and on the third day be raised, because death and the grave could not hold our Lord Jesus Christ. And God had the last word. You and I are living especially in a time where there's so much going on out there. And so many words are being spoken. And God wants us to take this message today, and he really wants us to 
listen to him, to let him be the one that primarily dictates and defines and directs our life, and that we learn to sort of to, to not let the other voices out there that are not coming from him to be what we listen to, you see. And let him have that last word in our life. With that said, please turn with me to the book of, uh, the, over to Luke chapter 20. Again, as I said earlier, this is a chapter of a series of confrontations. It is all about opposition to Jesus and how this group, this Sanhedrin, sort of began to really put and apply the pressure to Jesus Christ, wanting to make him look bad, wanting to trip him up in public, wanting to publicly disgrace him, wanting to do anything they could to sort of bring him down because Jesus Christ was being a threat to their power and position in Israel. And rather than falling down and bowing down on their knees before their Messiah and their Lord and giving him praise and glory, they fought him tooth and nail every step of the way, even to the cross. So notice, it says one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, which, by the way, that's notable. What was Jesus doing in his final days on earth? He was teaching and preaching the word of God. The chief priests and the experts in the law with the elders came up. And you don't get it in the English, but that phrase came up as almost like they, they almost like accosted him. It was like they, they confronted him. They came out of nowhere suddenly. Now, obviously, Jesus knew what was coming because he's also God. But you and I, we've had that happen to us where all of a sudden somebody comes up to confront us and oppose us almost out of nowhere. We didn't see it coming. That's what was happening here. And they said to him, tell us. By what authority are you doing these things? In a sense, how dare you? Who told you you could do this? And what they're really referring to is back to the end of what happened in the last chapter where Jesus said, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. And he goes into the temple and he turns over the money changers tables and he cleans out and clears out the temple because of all the corruption and extortion, everything that was going on there that had to deal with the fact that the house of God became a place all about money rather than about worship. Can I say that that's far too often the case today in houses of worship? That it's far too much about money than it is worshiping God? He answered them, verse 3, I will ask you a question. You tell me. Which, by the way, was actually a very common practice of rabbis in those days. It was sort of a, a way to consider an issue at a deeper level. Jesus is saying, okay, you asked me a question. Let me ask you a question. Let, let's, let's run this out a little bit. Let's go a little bit deeper. John's baptism, verse 4. Was it from heaven? In other words, from God, or was it just from people? They discussed it with one another, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, then why did you not believe in him? Which is true. They rejected John the Baptist's ministry. So if they say, well, it, it was from God, then Jesus would say, then why weren't you on board with it? But if they say, well, it's from people, notice they say, all the people are going to stone us. 
because they think that John the Baptist is a prophet. So we've got a problem. So they replied. Now remember, this is the, this is the top echelon of the political, spiritual power and position in Israel. And they're not even going near to answer this. In fact, notice, they actually lie. Because they say in verse 7, we don't know where it came from. No, the, the truth is, they know where it came from. They just don't want to answer. And so Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by whose authority I do these things. Guess what? Jesus had the last word. Now, here's something, though, that you and I need to be aware of. And that is what Jesus says in verse 8. Because notice, Jesus here is also teaching us a principle. And the principle is this. Jesus will not give us more if we fail to respond to what he's already given. That's why he would not answer the Sanhedrin when they ask, hey, by whose authority are you doing these things? Because they already weren't responding to John the Baptist, who was his forerunner, who was the one God sent to prepare the way for the, the, for the Lord, who told people very clearly, behold, there goes the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They've already rejected John the Baptist's ministry and his message. Therefore, Jesus isn't going to give them any more because they haven't been open to what God's already given them. So you and I, need to make sure that when God is wanting to share things and, and do things in our lives and give us things and teach us things and all of that, that we remain teachable and open to what God wants to give us. Otherwise, if we haven't responded to what God's already given, he's not going to give us any more into our hands. We need to be constantly responsive to God, which is really what worship is all about, a heart of worship, always responding to God in a positive way. Then Jesus, immediately after this, begins to tell them a parable. And in this parable, we're not going to go all the way through it, but I do want you to notice that the man there that planted the vineyard represents God. The vineyard is Israel. And the tenant farmers that he mentions in verse 9 are the religious leaders of Israel down through their history. The slaves that the man who planted the vineyard sends to the tenant farmers to do business with them are representative of the prophets of God that God sent to the nation of Israel, again, down through their history. And you'll notice there in the parable, every time the man who had the vineyard sent one of his prophets to the nation of Israel, and especially what would be the response of the religious leaders, notice it says that they beat the slave, verse 10, and sent him away. Then they, he sent another, and they beat that one too. And if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you know that many of the prophets that God sent to his people to try to wake them up and, and get them to see the light and all of that, they were treated horribly. And who was all behind it? it? It wasn't just the general population. It was being stirred up by the religious leaders of Israel. So notice verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my one dear son. Guess who that represents? Jesus, God the Father's one dear son. 
And do you think that they paid any more respect to the son than they did his servants? No. Notice it says in verse 14, this is the heir. Let's kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do then? He's going to come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's going to give the land, the inheritance, to someone else. What a warning this was to Israel. And of course, the people there say in verse 16, may this never happen, because they understand what that means. That because they have not responded properly to what God has done, they forfeit the, the privilege and the honor of being able to manage the resources that God wanted to give them. And God then will give them to someone else who's more faithful. And then I love this, verse 17, Jesus looked straight at them. Can you imagine getting looked into the eyeballs of Jesus Christ? That's what he was doing here. And he says, that which is written, I want you to understand the meaning of this. The stone the builders rejected, verse 17, has become the cornerstone. In other words, he's saying, the nation of Israel has not just rejected the son, they've refused the stone that God sent. And because of that, everyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. In other words, the cornerstone eventually is going to become the judgment stone. And notice again in verse 17, God has the last word. That it's not that the builders don't reject the stone that God has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's the fact that even though they rejected it, he still became the cornerstone. God still had the last word. God said he's still the supreme stone. No matter what you think of him, no matter how you treat him, he is still the cornerstone because it has nothing to do with man's response. It's our privilege to be able to respond to God in a positive way, but it has no bearing on who God is. If every last human being that God ever created rejected Jesus Christ and did not believe in him, that would not make Jesus any less God. That would not make him any less great than what he is. God's reputation, God, who God is, is not based on how many human beings buy into it. It's our, for our good and our benefit to believe in God. It adds nothing to him because there's nothing that you and I can do as human beings to ever add to God. He is who he is regardless of how we respond to him and whether we believe in him. Even if every human being would have been an atheist that ever was born and never believed in him, that would not mean God doesn't exist, you see. So God, again, had the last word. By the way, it's very interesting that in verse 17, the verse from the book of Psalms that Jesus quotes here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, comes from the very same psalm, Psalm 118, that the people used on Palm Sunday when they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jesus saying, yeah, and I'm going to use that same psalm to remind you how fickle you are. <laughs> that that you know, you were welcoming me in as the triumphant king one week, and you're going to be the same people that in a few days are going to cry out, crucify me, crucify me. 
because I'm going to be rejected. And it starts with the religious leaders of Israel. Well, then notice verse 20. This tells us they would stoop to any level to hold on to their power. In fact, let's go back to verse 19. It says, Then the experts in the law and the chief priests wanted to arrest him that very hour because they realized he had told this parable against them. They got it, but they were afraid of the people. Sort of typical, right, of those in power many times. It's like, again, see which way the wind's blowing and the popularity, and we want to make sure that we stay in our positions of power and all of that because, you know, we don't want to ruffle the people too much. We don't want to do what's right here. Then they watched him carefully and sent spies, verse 20, who pretended to be sincere. In other words, it was all a facade. They wanted to take advantage of what he might say so that they could deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Again, I say to you, the religious leaders and political leaders of Israel were showing that they would, not, they would stoop to any level to hold on to their position in power. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Because most of the people in positions and power today throughout the world will pretty much stoop to any level to hold on to that position of power. They will do anything, no matter how corrupt, no matter how evil, no matter how wicked, because they have gotten into the mindset that them staying in that position is more important than anything, and they'll do anything to stay there. The same thing was true in Jesus' day. Thus, verse 21, they asked him, and their strategy now, instead of sorting coming at him in a negative way, was false flattery. Let's butter him up a little bit. So notice what they say. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and show no partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Gag! They didn't mean that. We already showed that. They, they weren't sincere. That was all just a facade. So then the question is, is it right? And when they say it's right, their meaning is it right before God? Is it right for us before God to pay this tribute tax to Caesar or not? And you got to understand, they thought they had him. They're like, yeah. We got him now. He's going to be sitting on the horns of a dilemma because if Jesus says, oh, yeah, pay your taxes to Caesar, all these Jews who hate paying taxes to Caesar are going to finally turn against him. But if he says, oh, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, then they can just march right up to the Roman authorities and say, this guy here, he's an insurrectionist. And, and he, he is subverting your empire. So they're like, how's he going to get out of this? Isn't it amazing to think that we little humans think that somehow we can outsmart God? Well, first of all, the problem is they don't know he's God. But even sometimes, I mean, it's almost like we somehow, you know, deceive ourselves into thinking we're so smart Smarter than even God. So notice, verse 23, Jesus perceived their deceit. 
Because why? Because Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus knows, no matter what comes out of our mouth, Jesus knows our hearts. And he says, show me a denarius. Now, why is that important? Well, because his answer is this. Whose image and inscription are on it? They said, Caesar's. So he said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Why was it so significant that all Jesus had to do is say, well, show me a Roman coin, and they were just popping him out? Because that was part of his answer. You see, he's saying, you all are carrying around these Roman coins in your pocket. You have them readily available. You can just pull them out as soon as I said somebody to show me a denarius. It wasn't like you say, oh, wait a minute. We don't have any on us. We got to walk home and get one. No, they had, their pockets were full of them. Why? Because that's what they used to buy and sell. And Jesus is saying, well, if you're using Roman currency to do your, you know, buying and selling and your everyday life, then guess what? you need to pay taxes on that because you're using that money. But he says, the things that are God's, you need to render those to God's. And if these coins had the Roman emperor on it, Jesus was reminding the people, you all are made in the image of God, therefore you should render yourselves to God. And notice here that Jesus takes their either-or scenario, which is what I even see happening today. That part of the reason there's such division is that it has to be an either-or. It has to be this or else it's got to be that, right? And Jesus answers and responds to their either-or scenario with a both-and doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. It can be you're using Caesar's money, so therefore, yeah, you should pay tax on that. But second of all, you're also using God's stuff that God is giving you, including your own body, your own life that you were created in the image of God. And therefore, you should offer yourselves to God as well. And so notice verse 26 Thus they were unable in the presence of the people to trap him with his own words, and stunned by his answer, guess what? They fell silent. Who had the last word? Jesus did. Jesus had the last word. God had the last word about the cornerstone. Even though he was rejected, he still became the cornerstone. God had the last word in their question about Whose authority are you doing these things by? And Jesus would not answer, but actually asked them a question that they were unwilling to answer and basically shut them up there. But then we come to maybe the most outlandish one. The Sadducees, verse 27, who did not acknowledge that God placed eternity in all of our hearts, contend that there is no resurrection, came to him, and they ask him, and I'm just going to read this. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and father children for his brother. So they come up with this wild scenario that in their minds shows how ridiculous it is to, to believe in the resurrection. Because they say, 
if this guy gets remarried seven times and you're telling me that there's a resurrection to eternal life somewhere, doesn't that just convolute everything in eternity? Because whose husband or why? How do they all fit together in eternity? That's basically what they're trying to say. Because they say at the end, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Now think about it. They're rejecting the truth of the resurrection based on, in their minds, humanly, how many mixed-up scenarios is going to be if we run that out. But the Sadducees' question is based on a wrong presentation. Let me, let me get it right. Presupposition. Blech. Because their presupposition that Jesus is going to correct is that life in eternity is totally equivalent or equal counterpart to life on earth. And Jesus is saying, you can't judge how things are in eternity based on how things are on earth, because there's going to be some similarities, but there's going to be a lot of differences. And so Jesus says in verse 34, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those in eternity after the resurrection, marriage is not a part of it anymore. People are not going to meet each other and get married and have families, all that in eternity after. That's not the same that was for here and now. That was God's plan for here and now. That is not the way it is in eternity. So your whole question about whose wife and husband is this going to be doesn't even matter in eternity. Now, to some of you, I can already see the smoke coming out your ears. You're already thinking, well, does that mean that, like, you know, our spouses and our family and all that, like, that, that doesn't? No, Jesus isn't saying that that doesn't matter. He's not saying that we won't know each other in that way, but all he's saying is life after the resurrection is not going to be the same as it was here, and there's not going to be that kind of a relationship like we have here where we're all huddled in our homes and we have our own little families and all of that. We're all going to be serving and worshiping the Lord together, and there's going to be equal love for everyone in heaven because there's no sin and there's no selfishness in heaven like there is here. Now, I do love what Jesus said. In verse 35, he says, But those who are declared or regarded as worthy by God to share in that age in the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. You and I don't make ourselves worthy to get there. We are declared righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's how we have peace with God. And I hope everyone here this morning that is hearing my voice, that there was a time in your life where you were justified, Romans 5.1, before God, that God declared you and I righteous, not because we were worthy, but we were made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's how we have peace with God. And that means when you and I are declared righteous by God, we then have a share in the age to come. It is something that every last Christian gets to look forward to. 
in verse 36. Then Jesus goes on to say, that's because they can no longer die because death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, grave, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, because they are equal to the angels in the sense that they are the, now the children of God since they are the sons of the resurrection. Death does not have a hold on them anymore. And they now possess and hopefully are experiencing resurrection life. Notice here that Jesus is saying presently that you and I, even as Christians, don't have to wait till we die or the rapture to begin to experience resurrection life. We already possess it and should be experiencing our resurrection life here and now, you see. And that's the hope we have. And then he goes on in verse 37 to say, oh, by the way, guys, you Sadducees that think you're so smart, that you don't believe in the resurrection, that you don't believe in anything after death, which again is a denial of what Ecclesiastes 3.11 teaches, which is that God has placed the reality of eternity in every human heart. We can deny it, but God has said Every human being down deep in the inner recesses of their being knows that they will live forever. They know that because I placed it there, that we are eternal souls and that there is something after death. But then Jesus says this, I'm going to use, because the Sadducees, their main part of the Bible, if you will, that they held above everything else was the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That, that was their thing, you see. So Jesus, notice, uses the very teachings of Moses to show them how wrong they are. He says, oh, by the way, Moses revealed that the dead are raised in the passage about the bush, <laughs> meaning when he was talking to the Lord at the burning bush, because he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, he's saying, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were no longer existing anywhere, then he would not have said that. He would have said something like, he was the God. Of Abraham. He was the God of Isaac. He was the God, but he doesn't say that. He literally says the God, he's the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jesus goes on to say, that makes God the God not of the dead, but of the living, for all live before him. Then again, notice some of the experts in the law answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And, and notice this. For they did not dare any longer to ask him anything. Why? Because Jesus had the last word. You and I need to make sure that we let Jesus have the last word. In our own lives. And in all this 
stuff that's swirling around and all these voices that are talking and, and speaking and, and everything else that at the end of the day, people can talk and will talk and probably talk more than they've ever talked up until the end. The main voice that you and I need to be listening to and talking to and communing with is the voice of our God. And notice here, too, in this passage, we also have a very good reminder that Jesus Christ is the answer to everything. You want the answer? Jesus has it. And even those who think they have the answer, just like the Sanhedrin who thought they were smarter than everybody else because of their position, because of their seat of power. Everybody should listen to us. Jesus sort of put them in their place and showed that maybe you're not as smart and wise as you think you are because you have yet to humble yourselves before God. It's like those who believe in evolution. Paul says, professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. And that's why from the very beginning of even this whole thing with the virus and everything, I was like to other Christians, I'd be careful that just because someone comes on TV or the radio or the news and says, I'm an expert, that just because they're hailed an expert doesn't mean you and I as Christians should listen to them above listening to God. Because if you do just listen to the experts out there in the world, my question to you would be, does that mean you still believe you descended from apes? Because that's what the experts say. The experts tell us in our colleges and in our universities that we descended from apes, but that's not what God says. So are we going to be reduced to just listening to other voices, no matter who they are, or are we going to be tuning ourselves into listening to the voice of God? I want you to be encouraged today. God loves you. God has a plan and purpose for you. God wants you to be strong in him. God want, doesn't want you to get caught up and listen to all the junk and garbage that's going on around there. He wants you to hear him rejoicing and singing over you every day. He wants you to be involved in what he has for you and not get drugged down by, by the world and the way, way the world's going. He wants you to let him define you, to direct you, to give you your marching orders every day. So let's do that as God's people, amen? amen. Let's, let's let God be the one to define us and who has the last word in our life. Let's not even let ourselves have the last word or any other human being or any other person out there have the last word. Let's let God have the last word of who we are and what we can become as God's people, amen? Let's stand and pray. God, we thank you that, Lord, in spite of so many other voices, so many other people speaking, just as it was in Jesus' day, so many people who thought they had the answer, but, God, you had the answer all along, that, God, we would ultimately listen to you, that we would ultimately, God, hear your voice as your sheep and follow you each and every day. Because, Lord, we can't 
serve you unless we're following you, and we can't follow you unless we hear your voice. Cut through all the other voices. And so, God, I pray that even right now, Lord, in our own sort of personal way, we are, we are dialing ourselves in to your voice. That we're taking the dial off all the other stations for a moment, and we're dialing it right in to the airwaves of heaven and that we are clearly hearing you above all other voices. God, as we sing this song today as a declaration of your people to you, God, I pray that it would be truth, that I pray that it would be real, that God, we as your people would let you and you alone define, direct, and guide us through our life. Because we're living in a world where there's so many voices. But God, your voice has to be the voice we hear above everyone else. God, would you do a work in your people today? In Jesus' name, amen.